Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicking along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's not just another Magic Monday here on X. We have a special topic we want to kick things off with today. And to do that, I've brought in some help, and that's going to be my amazing husband and show co-creator and guy in charge of all of the amazing graphics for this series, Kevo. That would be me. You can find me over on the social as well on Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And one of the major things that affects a lot of this team is queer identity and queer rights. We are a predominantly queer podcast and as we are also a predominantly U.S.-based podcast, though we do have a number of amazing contributors from around the world, we are very affected right now by all of the legislation that's being introduced into our country. And it's something that affects so many of us directly that we wanted to take a moment just to voice that whether we are trans, queer, and ally, we stand with those affected by these bills. Hello, it's me, Steve, and I am bisexual and non-binary, and I identify as trans, and I condemn in the strongest terms all anti-trans and anti-LGBT at large bills being passed or being considered around the country right now with special care and concern for Florida, Texas, and Idaho. Hey, I'm Nathan and I'm queer and I do not support, endorse in any way, shape, or form any of the bills out there that are targeting LGBT youth, especially our fellow trans members of the society. I do not support the Don't Say Gay Bill or any other form of politically mass hate speech. Hey, this is Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread, a.k.a. One Pissed Off Pansexual, who is very tired of people and especially corporations sponsoring bills that specifically target marginalized communities, especially the LGBTQ plus community. I condemn anybody and any corporation who sponsors these bills targeting these marginalized groups for discrimination, especially since a large amount of their funding, a large amount of money and profits they take in come from the queer community. I honestly hope that any business or person who sponsors these kind of bills fails at life, just like these bills are going to fail in superior courts. Well, no, we, we lost an in practically entire generation of queer folks because corporations and government entities decided that, that AIDS yep. and HIV was an acceptable disease to let run rampant because it was going to quote unquote only affect the queer and deviant community which they thought and been very much put forward that anybody who was LGBTQ was a deviant and in some way shape or form deserved death. Yeah. Yep. Ronald, yep. Ronald Reagan, lest we forget that Ronald Reagan laughed at us while we died. Yep. Multiple times. Multiple fucking times. <clears throat> and like, like that's why, like even in like the late 80s, that's why it was such a big thing when Madonna with her Like a Prayer album put that fact sheet just about HIV and AIDS in there just because there's just even even in like 88, 89 there was so much misinformation out there mm -hmm. about the disease and nobody wanted to 
nobody wanted to correct it because all they cared about was it made the queers look bad. It so. was it was genuinely considered progressive, radical, and brave for manga and comic books at the time to even have like posters with the word HIV in the background on them, which I've seen in the past. And, you know, like at the at, nowadays, I wouldn't bat an eye at it, but like yep. at the time, it was like, oh my God, they're even saying it. Yep. Yep. Even, even when <laughs> Golden Girls did that episode where Rose thought she might have gotten HIV from a blood transfusion, like that's the late 80s. That's huge. And, and like, I'll, I'll never forget what Blanche said in there. She's like, you know, AIDS is not a bad people disease. Like, just that right there at yeah. that time period was just astoundingly so progressive and it shouldn't have been but which should which should really remind us all of how harmful and deadly it is to refuse to say well, things that pertain absolutely. to the gay community any any, any well, yeah, censoring and... or any erasure of even just talking to young people about sexuality and gender orientation gender gender expression sexual orientation all of that is is, is deadly and it, it will it will take lives mm-hmm. if we are quiet about it just... well i mean 40 years later our blood donation policies are still affected yeah. by homophobia and queerphobia oh, yeah. because you, you cannot yeah yeah and, and and that's the funny thing it's there's nothing against women per se there's nothing against queer women or lesbians mm. but they specifically target you know queer men gay men and yeah, put these weird restrictions in there that, you know, oh no, you can't donate blood unless you haven't touched anybody else. They're already screening for every single disease that is a bloodborne pathogen that, you know, they actually worry about passing on. And they test both, you know, heterosexual and non-heterosexual, you know, you're, they're testing all, yeah, the they test all the blood. Why is that requirement yeah. still needed? Um, it's not it's not it's not they, it's punitive at best yeah, it it all it is 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 just still outmoded and outdated forms of discrimination and homophobia which is why it's so important <laughs> that like our politicians just go out there right now and, and not just say the lgbtq community lgbtqi community which is what these bills are targeting but they're specifically targeting trans people and they really 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 need to go out there and say yeah we protect our trans youth I because have... they don't and they just they dance around it say it i have a serious gripe with calling it the don't say gay bill because that in itself just erases the fact that it also prevents them from talking about gender identity Mm -hmm. in schools yeah it's it's about all forms of suppression talking about the lgbtq community representation of of who you are as self Mm -hmm. it is not just about saying gay it's about talking about bisexuality it's about talking about gender fluid um or non-binary it's it cuts out the legs of being able to give a child any information about any question they might have have sex ed if you don't know all the kinds of sex you're definitely going to have because the only sex they want to teach you about is the reproductive kind and just all those people out there who are like oh it's too kids are too young to learn about sexuality you force sexuality down kids throat when they're four years old and you say they have a play marriage with another four-year-old like they should wear wear blue and not pink pink and not blue it's like how how, we can't talk about gender identity unless it's the right kind but yeah 
Hey, my name's TK. I'm a queer person, and I do not support HB 1557. I stand in solidarity with my LGBTQIA plus siblings, brothers, sisters, and everything else. And I love my community, and I want better for all of us. I'm Kyle. I'm queer. I do not support the HB 1557 bill in Florida. I have to support all of my queer friends and all of the creators out there and seeing them suffer down in Florida because of this and because of other bills around the country, it's breaking my heart. My name is Kevo and I am a gay man and a trans ally and I do not support the don't say gay bill, anti-trans bills, or any other form of politically masked hate speech. And of course, you guys already know I'm Nico and I am a out and proud queer pansexual man and a trans ally i do not support the don't say gay bill any anti-trans legislation or form of politically masked hate speech and i do call upon corporations and those who have a microphone to voice their dissent against these bills which they have made clear in so many ways by being so inclusive of queer culture make sure that you make the stand on the right side of us now from something unbelievably heavy to something just a little bit lighter today we are here to talk about another number of Marvel's most magical titles. Later on, we're going to get to X's for Podcast mainstay, Strange Academy for its penultimate issue. But first up, we actually have a Marvel Infinity comic, as seems to be the case around here. We're going to be taking a look at Marvel Fairy Tales Infinity Comics number one through four. Now, Kevo, when we were talking about this for a moment, you noted how dynamically transformative this creative team was at times. Oh, yes. The whole series sees writing from Ryan North. Issue one sees pencils from Jay Fosgett. Issue two sees pencils from Dax Gordine. And both issues see inks by Ian Herring. While issues three and four feature pencils, inks, and colors by Gustavo Duarte. And the whole series is lettered by VC's Joe Sabino. Now, Kevo, how did you feel about the potentiality of sort of this intersection of Marvel and fairy tale? I was really excited by the prospect. I think it's something that there is always a lot of potential for you know we all know these stories so well so many of us grew up on them and so many different versions of them that there's so many things you can do with them and i was honestly a little bit disappointed that they didn't do as much as i thought they might you know and i think it's because marvel has such a complex relationship with the idea of fairy tale and story now of course kevo you and i have covered the x-men classic kitty's fairy tale we covered it a million years ago it's uncanny x-men 153 it's such a well-regarded story and it definitely holds a place in the hallmarks of X-Lore. You know, it's just so funny that you were on that and now you're on this. Oh, yeah. And then in the years since, there have been a number of attempts to connect with fairy tales. There were even three miniseries, X-Men Fairy Tales, Spider-Man Fairy Tales, and Avengers Fairy Tales, which were sort of in the spirit of fairy tales written by now editor-in-chief C.B. Sobolski, where the first feature a take on a Japanese fairy tale featuring Cyclops. The second, an African folk tale reimagining Xavier and Magneto. The third, a American South voodoo priestess mystique gambit rogue story. And finally, issue four, which was a sort of Brothers Grimm story. Goodness gracious, that's a lot. And it was all, yes. And so then there's Spider-Man fairy tales, which 
which moves on from X-Men. And the first one is a little Red Riding Hood. So already we're a little bit more in line with what you might expect. And then we get Anansi and it's maybe not what you'd think. However, this does feature art by Nico Henricon, who I love and couldn't be more excited to see get work. Number three tells a young Buddhist monk Japanese ghost story take on Spider-Man's origin. And number four is like, I don't know, it's Cinderella meets Arthur meets Spider-Prince and the Goblin Brigade. I don't even know what the fuck to talk about. Meets Arthur like the Dudley Moore movie or like the PBS cartoon? I'm I'm just fucked by that. That's amazing. <laughs> and I, I just didn't see that coming at all. Well, I just have to be clear. Oh, you have to be. I'm completely with you. Now, the- You still haven't answered. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're totally right. It's like Arthur Miller. It's very crucible heavy. Oh, so not even either of my options. Okay. No, it's Arthur of the Pen Dragons. Oh, uh, okay. Of the tables that are round. Arthurian. Okay. Arthurian. I understand yeah. now. That's yeah. what you're looking for. Okay. So then the fourth series is Avengers Fairy Tales. And this one bills itself as the critically acclaimed line of Marvel Fairy Tales continues. And yeah. Okay. So the first one is Pietro and Wanda in Neverland with Cap and Iron Man and Thor. Oh, that sounds cute. Yeah. Following that is a Pinocchio take on Hank Pym and the Vision. Jock. Number three features Cassie Lang in Wonderland. Ah, yes. Perfect. And number four of most particular interest to you, Kevo, is a young Jennifer Walters is swept away into the mysterious land of Oz. Ah! So strangely, she's green. (laughs) (laughs) Now, strangely enough, the Avengers fairy tale trade is actually called Marvel fairy tales and not only features the four issues of Avengers fairy tales, but also includes Spider-Man fairy tales number one and X-Men fairy tales number two. So that's kind of a a weird spin on it. I wouldn't expect, you know, you'd you'd think they would kind of be a little bit more in line, though. Spider-Man did get its own trade, as did X-Men fairy tales. I don't know why I ended that like more was coming. I don't Um, either. But I definitely ended that like, oh, but think about this. I don't know why I did that. All of that preamble out of the way, we're here to talk about a very different approach to this sort of storied fairy tale idea instead of taking a classic marvel character and inserting them into a fairy tale in some sort of bizarre insert story we're instead seeing a modern fairy tale play out featuring our characters in a setting that's vaguely their own and i guess that is sort of why it played out the way it did when you're doing a fairy tale setting with original or you know ip characters you can bend the story a lot more because it's still set in the original fairy world. Whereas this being set in the Marvel world, I think they decided to go more along the route of being more directly faithful to the story overall. But as we were going through it and we're hitting the beats and I'm like, he's, he's stealing gold and going to go back up. He's stealing a goose. Like it just felt very note for note, Jack and the Beanstalk just set in Manhattan. And I think that sort of disappointed me. I was hoping for them to twist the story a little bit more with this brand new setting. But I can see why they would want to stay more faithful, considering it is such a different way to tell the story. And I think part of where we're coming from with that is we're actually sort of reimagined fairy tale aficionados. Oh, yeah. 
Once Upon a Time. And even like if you think about it in a really interesting way, Kingdom Hearts as a video game franchise, there's American McGee's Alice, which mm. was sort of a, a horror update of Alice. So, I mean, we have seen reimaginings of fairy tales into modern situations a number of times. And because of that, I think we've seen the, the sort of the medium and the paradigm challenged frequently. And I think, you know, with problematic in every way, but fables really did lead a charge in a modern audience. Sandman did it, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. Oh my God. Sandman did it 35 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Where's that update, Netflix? Where's that update, Netflix? But speaking of up, one of the things that I thought worked really well for this story was specifically using the Beanstalk device. Yes. You know, Infinity comics are so about the visual motion, about carrying my eyes through this story. And it's in that regard that I did feel that perhaps, while it, it did feel like an Infinity comic, issue one being by a totally different penciler very much comes across. <sighs> I wish that it didn't but it really does i think issues two through four have a much more consistent look and style and it's not that it is so dramatically different from the first issue that it's horrible to look at or anything and we're not trying to say that but it is remarkably different there's thicker ink lines on the first issue one of my earliest experiences with reading comics on my own independently of nico was when i read the slave labor graphics gargoyles continuation comic and i very vividly remember the second arc of that comic all four issues had completely different artists and i had no experience with that at the time and i remember you even telling me yeah that just that happens it has to happen even if you want to get the story out the door in any amount of reasonable time it's just a sacrifice you have to be willing to make sometimes and this is nowhere near that experience by any means but i did so love the style of the first issue specifically i love thicker lines i felt you know everyone looked a little bit sweeter and a little more whimsical than they did throughout the rest of the issues i really love that perspective about the sweetness because for me i described the first issue as sort of a cartoony norman rockwell mm. there was a sense of innocence and kindness to every character there was a moment of may kissing peter on the forehead that perhaps maybe in issue one made it feel a little more out of continuity than the subsequent issues do and this, yeah this first issue has so much going for it like i have no issues with i have no issue i've got to stop using that term to describe <laughs> periodical problems right? right i have issues with the issues right i have no problems with the periodical installments number two through four but i think i liked number one the most the infinity shenanigans with the beanstalk and i'll be honest this version of cersei fucking rocks yeah i mean this is comic cersei exactly like this is exactly Exactly, comic Cersei. Nice. And I thought the whole that she's like, we have to catch this deviant, and now we have to turn him into grape jelly, and now he's a frog. That worked for me. I mean, it's a plan. It worked for her, not so much for Peter. Well, and you know, I think that's even sort of the whimsy of it, because that's sort of an extreme exaggeration of what would work in an actual Eternals comic. If Cersei was facing a deviant that had been Gamma Hulk charged, she would manipulate the Hulk Gamma charged particles 
holes in him and invert him in on himself so that every time he exerts his strength, he becomes exceptionally weak until he is nothing but some kind of animated radioactive skeleton. And then she'd do something with it. Like that would be a Cersei thing. She's just so fucking wild. This was such a cute, funny version of that. It was the PB and J version of that. And it was also such a cute, funny version of the ingress to the story. Peter isn't selling a cow. He's selling these rings. They go out of their way to make it clear that they're not overly sentimental. So this isn't like a May and Peter are destitute story. And then it's superhero shenanigans that result in him ultimately having only beans. And that's what I'm talking about, where that was such a great subversion of what the beat for beat original story is. Whereas everything from the rest of it is just there's a giant up there and she likes them, but her partner won't. So she hides them. And then everything that follows is just pretty much what the story is, except J. Jonah Jameson's motivations are different from Jack from the original story. He's just Jonah being Jonah. And, you know, I do want to interact with something I really love that you mentioned about the subversion. The main point of the subversion, as far as I can tell, is to establish that it wasn't Peter being irresponsible, but rather down on his luck. And that's actually the heart of with great power comes great responsibility by having Peter not irresponsibly purchase beans but rather in the course of saving the day accidentally lose his rings to becoming beans gives us an opportunity to remember the core standard of Spider-Man's character. Spider-Man is meant to be driven by a need to do what's right. He's such a you know a do-good good boy that it's important that he not be irresponsible and thus responsible for the beanstalk. Absolutely. Especially because, you know, in these situations, you're often looking for a scapegoat. You're looking for someone who can be the bad guy. And I think Marvel has to start being very careful about how they portray J. Jonah Jameson as the bad guy. Because, number one, you've got J.K. Simmons with that fucking insane body up there, and he'll beat you to death. But number (laughs) two, you want us to like this character. You want us to like, if they were to do, and they shouldn't, they really shouldn't. But if they were to do like a hyper reimagined Spidey school book, you would want J. Jonah Jameson to be able to be the gym teacher and be able to have him be the kind of curmudgeonly gym teacher that yells at Miles. And do they, I'm trying to figure out, do they call her like ghosty or like, is she just Gwen? Like whatever they call like little kid ghost spider. I almost called her little kid ghost pepper. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like that is one of my major points of contention with Spider-Man no way home as a film i don't want to call it a flaw because there is something to be said for the interesting portrayal of j jonas jameson as literally basically a villain but that is what he was in that film it was the most deranged and dangerous i feel i have ever seen a portrayal of j jonah jameson he was going after an underaged boy he caused so much damage and there was absolutely no softer side to J.K. Simmons' most recent portrayal of J. Jonah Jameson. 
innocent. It was all venom, all hard. And that's something that you have to be very careful with a character like this of going too hard in that direction. His original portrayal in the Sam Raimi trilogy, there are a lot of moments of softness where you can see that he's a he's at least got a decent side. And they went out of their way to make sure that they showed that in this J. Jonah Jameson as much as they could as well. They played up his hardness for comedy a little bit, but that is the nature of this type of Infinity comic. I think they are meant to be a little bit storybook, and so you don't really go into the nuance of human behavior in a story like this. And yet somehow Ryan North, who is just like such a dexterous master of storytelling, we explicitly loved his work on Merry Christmas, Mr. Howlett. Yes. You know, he is just such a great storyteller that I feel like... So to jump from issue one to issue two, one of the things that I did appreciate was it wasn't that J. Jonah Jameson was like, plant those beans so we can extort somebody. He was careless. And, you know, when we're talking about a guy who's like, keep printing newspapers, yeah, maybe he would be a little environmentally careless. Like, that's not the craziest thing I've ever heard. But I think the whole May is gonna kill me thing really made me care about J. Jonah Jameson as a man in a way that I'm not used to. I actually like his son a lot, so I do think of him as a father, but seeing him be protectively avuncular of Peter is something that softens him to me immensely. See, and to me, May is gonna kill me was playing it up a little bit too much for laughs. I think he was just like, ah, the kid's dead. Well, I'm gonna keep climbing. And see, I kind of think it as like, oh, May is gonna kill me. Like, I, I heard, I made her a promise. Like, I, you know, I probably projected a little bit, but, little, you know, yeah. a little bit, but I wanted it there, right? I wanted, I wanted it there, so I put it there. And, you know, I think part of it is that this issue was a little bit less chibi Norman Rockwell and a little bit more Dennis the Menace Mad Magazine. And I think because of that intermediary step of the art, some of the softness and whimsy was lost, yet it's still very cartoony. It's just maybe funny cartoony instead of sentimental cartoony. Yeah. And it is at this point that the story takes a dramatic change. Like, we've read a number of trades lately, and we've had a lot of phenomenal appearances from characters you might not expect. For instance, in the most recent Kate Bishop Hawkeye miniseries, America Chavez was such a major presence throughout the multiple issues of the series that she rated the cover of the trade. And, like, she's not in the, you know, in the title. It's just she appeared so much. It kind of felt like Cersei was maybe meant to do that and then did it. Like, I felt the I felt a very weird disconnect from issues two, three, and four that maybe could have even been fixed if Cersei had appeared more. Yeah, okay. I get that. It did feel like a very sudden narrative shift. Like I said, this is the point where it just mostly starts following the story beats of the original. The only major change, obviously, other than the giants being frost giants, which, you know, if, if you didn't do that, I don't know why you would bother setting this in the Marvel Universe in the first place. Making both of the giants female was a very nice gesture, honestly. I don't want to be one of those people who says I don't know that it added much to the story, but I only mean that in terms of that's the only really major change you made to the story. There's cute little jokes like treating the harp like an echo dot, but other than that, it pretty much just follows the consistent beats 
part of what made the it playing out so dead on maybe after four issues I did start to feel it a little bit was that there wasn't a lot of room to build a narrative around it I found the fee-fi-fo-fum joke worked really well multiple times but in so many ways when I took a step back that's all there was really room for I really get what you mean like a lot of room in issue two was devoted to explaining to J. Jonah Jameson yes I saved Peter and now I'm going to take the pictures for him because he still needs the money and J. Jonah being like well I guess that makes sense like that was a lot of page space and maybe I just don't care as much about that being so neatly tied up, but I personally didn't really need that as much as I wanted more focus to be on this story that you're creating. Because this isn't really like an issue of Spider-Man where I need to worry about the continuity of J. Jonah not finding out. It's, It's just a frivolous story anyway, so you don't need to worry about that kind of narrative consistency. Because one of the things you can do in a story like this is you can rely on our interpretation of these characters relationships from pop culture right yeah you don't need to earn my goodwill on J. Jonah Jameson being a vuncular of Spider-Man though again I did love that moment I probably didn't need to be reminded that J. Jonah Jameson is a thiefy asshole so much like <laughs> I I know J. Jonah Jameson is a bad guy I know J. Jonah Jameson is a bad guy and it's that really funny critique of when somebody's new to you know trying to creative write a little bit and so they hit it on the head a little too much. Now, I'm not saying that's true of Ryan North. I'm saying that's true of J. Jonah Jameson as a character for the last 60 plus years. It's not that Ryan North created a one-note interpretation of J. Jonah Jameson so much as while he is a character with nuance who has shown depth on more than one occasion humanity in many cases, and humanity in this, he is the bad guy of this in a punching bag kind of way. And I think that Ryan North even accurately nailed what J. Jonah would do in situations like this my thing is more why is it a little bag of gold and you know some of the things that are jumping out at me from this are things that jump out at me from the fairy tale itself so they're not even necessarily ryan north's fault but it's part of why i wish they had built on it instead and done something different instead i always look at these adaptations of jack and the beanstalk and i'm like why do they have this tiny little coin purse of gold coins in the first place why is the golden goose so small and lay eggs that are so tiny that completely are out of proportion for a giant in the first place I was hoping for something that would either make more sense, I guess, or tie more directly into the Marvel Universe, or hopefully both. And instead, it just is that tiny sack of gold. It is that tiny golden goose. It is that tiny same harp. Why? Why? The giant can't play that harp. So no wonder it has to be voice activated. Oh, well, yeah, the giant can't play that harp. That's a really. Yeah, that's not a giant size goose. So, like, the fact that you're using the same exact story beats that I already, since my childhood, have gone, this doesn't make a lot of sense. That doesn't help in the first place when those are the things that you're just straight up pulling from the actual fairy tale. 
because there were little thematic touch points like Jotunheim is not the sky you know these are frost giants I do agree that when Spider-Man is so intrinsically built in with these ideas of multiversal escapades and shenanigans there is a a potentiality that this could have had like some secret wars elements and you know what maybe the giants are afro future punk you know or maybe they are super nordic iphone tech but like instead we get something that's perhaps a little bit too much in either world to feel very much like either not enough of a blend and it's really fun that at times because the issues did feel unique from each other i felt issue four had a very different pace it felt a little bit more pop referency. It felt a little bit more playful. So even though one was the most different from the others, four still felt kind of different from three, despite having the same art team. It was a really interesting experience the way that I felt issue four kind of fast forwarded us through the ending in a very classic cartoon kind of way. It was a mad dash for the finish line of the story in a way that we knew the story would end. And for all of the attention to detail on things like, I'm explaining to J. Jonah Jameson why Peter didn't die. What happened to that beanstalk in the middle of Manhattan? Yeah, you know, and that's part of that's part of a much larger conversation that I have really been thinking about a lot lately. And I've brought it up here and there on the show. I have been fascinated by the discovery that Infinite Comics were not Infinity Comics. Infinite Comics were tapped to create what felt like motion. Infinity Comics are never stop scrolling. And Kevo, you've been a part of some really interesting coverage, right? You've done spider Bot Infinity Comic, you've done Kushala Infinity Comic, you've been a part of the It's Jeff Infinity Comic coverage, and now you've done this. And if I were you, if I were somebody who had picked up Marvel Unlimited as a way to start getting into characters I'd love, I wouldn't know what the fuck to make of these Infinity Comics. Part of it is with Marvel, you really do rely a lot on the pop culture perception of these characters for any title that you go into. And I think especially with the Infinity Comics, I think they are meant to be a lot more casual fun than people who necessarily have to know the characters super well. For things like Kushala, obviously, very different. But for stuff like Spider-Bot or Jeff or even this... I think that they are much more accessible to both diehard and casual readers. I very do agree with that perspective on it. I only wish that there would be a way to sort of segment out the Shang-Chi Infinity Comics and the X-Men Infinity Comics and the Kushala Infinity Comics, these somewhat longer form stories that do tie into the events of canon and do make references to other stories going on currently so that these sort of like cutie grabums can be cutie grabums because then there's also another third line of infinity comics which are infinity adaptations of existing comics so they're going back and they're taking eternals by neil gaiman they're taking the first arc of shang chi they're taking spider-man by bendis as well as a number of other significant runs and they're infinitying them and i really see where you're coming from where they aren't given hugely distinctive delineation as to what is what i think you could argue well you know you can find out but 
when you're trying to build your audience, you don't get to get annoyed at your audience for finding your delivery method confusing. If you want to try and build an audience, especially with this sort of unique medium with many different stories being told through it, you kind of need to give your audience a little bit more in terms of being able to understand, okay, this one is just for fun. This one is more serious because you can't tell me that main continuity Marvel would never actually do a story like this and that it would never be told in a way that is kind of silly because I've seen stories like that all the time. It was last summer. It was called Empire. Tree people were taking over the Marvel Universe. It was a thing. And that seems so silly to somebody who is more of a casual Marvel fan who is trying to come in and figure out, okay, this stuff is continuity, this stuff is just lighthearted fun. And you, like I said, can't blame your audience for needing more support in understanding your product. That's your job as the person producing the product to make sure that people are finding it accessible. Because then there's even more confusion when it comes to taking a look at the Eternals Infinity comic there is an Eternals Infinity comic that is pretty vaguely set in the movie verse. Uh yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a little beyond even, you know? Yeah, it, you just wind up in these situations where I think that's a good portion of my frustration with this story. I am, you know, walking away giving this story a really excited B+. I'm not, you know, knocking it in any significant way where I'm like, oh, this didn't go the way I wanted it. I'm angry, you know? It's more like if I had known that this was vaguely uh, just kind of throw Peter in. Like if I had the idea that this was going to be like an episode of a Spider-Man animated series kind of like a what if. I feel like I might have approached this differently but you know I've mentioned those previous fairy tales whether it's Kitty's fairy tale or it's the line of C.B. Sobolski fairy tales that were published in 2006 to 2008 and I just perhaps yeah I just perhaps needed a little more. It's clearly a well that they go to a lot so it's something that is worth checking back in on and seeing how they've developed the concept because are you just telling a fairy tale story to tell it or did you have something fun unique and interesting to say with this especially because so many fairy tales have so many iterations and frequently people don't realize that versions of certain stories are also known as a similar tale so all right to kind of weird segue for a second I this is not a weird segue for you no this is pretty dead on right so I love the Golden Girls episode Henny Penny No Chaser and I always thought that was so strange how Henny Penny is just so gosh darn close to Chicken Little and how they're they're so similar and I finally looked it up and yeah no I mean they're literally the same story one is just like one country's popularized version of that I think I believe Cinderella is also donkey skin right um um, similar enough, but like she's Ashen Poodle, and I think that there is a Chinese version as well. So yeah, it's it's there's a lot of different versions of that throughout the globe. So because there is often a really expansive take on these fairy tales, it feels maybe just like if it had been communicated that this was a, you know, Sunday morning comic strip style take on it, it maybe would have hit a little bit better. And certainly not a knock against any of the art at any point, but the inconsistency from the first story 
story to the last story definitely did maybe break the stride a little bit. I feel like this, rather than being four separate issues, should have been just one or two longer issues. I think you probably could have cut some of the padding and made a much tighter story if it had been done that way instead. And I was maybe surprised that there was a little bit less parlor tricks on this one. I've been a really big fan of a lot of the silly dressing that has gone into these Infinity comics where like, oh, it's a beanstalk. I kind of kept thinking there would just be this giant, more or less phallic green pole going through the back of most panels. But no, it was not there. So I definitely... I do think it's worth a read and I think it's a quick read at that. Definitely nothing where you're going to be investing a very significant amount of time, but I do hope that the next arc goes in a somewhat different direction, though I'd love if the same creative team stayed on because I definitely know I'm interested in what they have to say. Yeah, I think that in the future they need to either lean a little more silly or a little more serious. I don't think they struck a fine enough balance between the two with this, but I still really enjoyed it. I think B plus is a pretty good grade to give it overall. And from the final issue of one arc to the penultimate issue of a run, we're taking a look at Strange Academy number 17. Now, Strange Academy is going to renumber after the 18th issue for a second semester. And of course, that first semester also includes the Death of Doctor Strange Presents Strange Academy special, as well as the director's cut of the first issue that was available for a while. It's got a lot of really great back matter. And this is such a solid block of time for these characters and such an incredible period to take a look at these characters through. One of the things Scotty Young said about this book when he was on the show was that he really wanted it to read like really well all at once, kind of whenever you pick it up. And I feel like as we grow closer to the final issue, it's becoming increasingly clear that he and Humberto Ramos have managed to hit that mark throughout the entire series. And I can't wait to see what they do for the second volume. But until then, guys, enjoy this last segment, Strange Academy number 17. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to subscribe Subscribe over on Twitter and Instagram at X's for Podcast. We love making the show for you guys three times a week, every week. That's Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays, schedule permitting. So until then, guys, stay magic. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. I'm Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcasts, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many acrimonious breakups week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me trying to kick my dependence on magical wishes over on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. That would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. That's right, a little bit of a rebranding there. And you can find me on, uh, let's see, Twitter, Instagram, on some bullshit, you know, just the regulars. And today we are talking about the penultimate issue of Strange Academy, produced by the most consistent team in the game right now, our writer Scotty Young. Art by Umberto Ramos, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. We love this team. We love that they are solidly participating in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So we've got a lot of intense and heartbreaking story to cover this week. The parallels between this book and the current political situation in which we Americans find ourselves right now took a pretty staggering step today for both the book and the world. So I believe we'll have plenty of time to discuss that, but I want to start by doing some of the more standard comic book material before we get into it. And for me, that's got to be starting off with the confrontation between Dr. Voodoo and Gaslamp. The book has never really delved too deep into the specifics of why it's set in New Orleans. There's kind of a mood to it, and there's a way in which it makes a lot of sense. We see some of the students connected to New Orleans um, identify it as a place of magical significance. But there's also a real feeling that this is a place of importance to the headmaster, Jericho drum dr voodoo and i loved starting off on this moment of him dressed in civilian clothes going into the french quarter and having this confrontation with gas lamp in which he clearly sees him as a maybe unwanted part but a part of his community that he knows and is aware of his activity and has come not to do you know magic fights but to have a conversation with a very frustrating neighbor yes it was definitely an interesting confrontation to say the least we get the harlequin masked foot soldiers that come out to put a little distance between dr voodoo and gas lamp before their confrontation really like solid fleshing out of gas lamp as a villain you know that he's got a, a cadre of probably unwilling souls to do his bidding between this you know his sidekick pop it and the just incredible look of this character and character design he's such a perfectly fleshed out villain for this first semester of strange academy it's funny that you said that they were unwilling i i see them as being willing and now reaping the consequences these are probably all magic addicts who've been turned into basically you know hey you used enough magic that hey welcome to consequences and now they're stuck as these foolies you know with the with the ma- the Mardi Gras fully mask stuck to their face and Gaslamp just took the price that he probably nicely told them that they oh you know don't worry have some magic now there'll, there'll be a price down the line but don't worry about it so yeah that's very interesting I didn't think about that and what great foreshadowing for Calvin it's interesting but at the t- same time I'm wondering if they're actually still alive because all of their mouths and eyes are stitched up as well. Mhm. So are, are you suggesting that maybe the cost of his magic is their actual lives and once yes. they they die then he just turns them into corpse soldiers? zombies yeah basically okay okay. Uh, yeah no because i mean we saw this with zoe oh yeah yeah Uh, yeah. zoe used magic from gas lamp a bunch of times and then the last time yeah it killed her yep and and they had to take her to marie laveau's grave and and get help that way but yeah like this this the stitched eyes and mouth kind of reads very classic hoodoo voodoo Mm -hmm. representation that we tend to see it might not be true to actual hoodoo and voodoo but Mm -hmm. it's it's the representation that we tend to see and yeah like i'm i'm saying that these are magic users who probably died or you know consequences finally came to collect them and so he's using the the fooling mass to animate their corpses and use them as basically 
actually henches. And I like that you brought it back to Zoe as well, because one of the things I have really liked about these most recent few issues is the way that they have tied into the story since its beginning. The prophecy by Miss Hazel has been such a looming threat, and the questions of to whom it pertains and what exactly it means are still unanswered, but we got in this issue a real need to confront and remind the readers about that prophecy and start making some definitive steps towards getting the questions answered and seeing where we go from here. Mm -hmm. It definitely feels more and more that we're leading back to the events that we see in issue 14 when Doyle moves into the that future alternate timeline. We're looking at that. I'm thinking of the very quick panel in Timeless with Kang the Conqueror who is doing his exploring realities thing and we get a shot to the future and it is Doyle fighting with the Twilight Sword, his father Dormammu. And I think there was a hope when we saw that panel that Doyle might be a hero finally you know, confronting his father and putting a stop to his evil. But now we're seeing a very real possibility that it might be that he is going to usurp his father. There is still very much that push that, yes, he is going to be evil. He's going to be bad. He is going to be the thing that is, you know, just destruction. And I'm like, there's a lot of other students in Strange Academy. So I'm wondering, is he just evil or does he get pushed to violence? Because there is a difference. It feels to me that he gets pushed to violence Mm-hmm. It also feels to me that Emily is the one who is breaking with the standards that are being set by the school. What? You mean Karen <laughs> is not happy with the rules and is just going to do what she wants or scream to get the manager? <laughs> no. Oh. I'm shocked, I tell you. Shocked and surprised, Karen asked Karen. <laughs> so of course that brings us to you know the start of the next scene in this book where the kids are all in the cafeteria together it is the night after the dance the night after Calvin was told that he was expelled we get a shot of Doyle the night after Emily stood Doyle up and didn't even <laughs> deem him worthy to get a text message or a call explaining where the fuck she was she just went ahead and broke his heart and didn't think anything of it even though she knew that he he was deeply in love with her and really wanted to start an actual relationship. You know, fuck that. Like, why communicate? Mm-hmm. And Doyle clearly shares your feelings. He <laughs> ices Emily out. You know, he goes and sits by himself and the the group goes to start talking about this and we get the revelation that Calvin was expelled. You know, whatever Emily did, she wasn't able to stop the expulsion. He got sent away. She completely stood Doyle up. And now we are left asking, you know, was this the right thing to do to Calvin? Was Emily wrong to stand Doyle up? That's a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's really interesting the way that she presents it as this sort of impassioned assistance of one of the group. And this is a group that has so often been there for each other and has been confronted with each other's past and secrets and refused to say, you know, this person is a write-off. So part of me really loved that in that moment, Emily realized that Calvin going home would be the thing that had much further reaching consequences. But 
we're seeing the other side of that being that she has no interest in accepting the consequences of what that meant for Doyle. Mm -hmm. And then as we go further, she has no interest in accepting the consequences of Calvin's actions as it relates to his status at Strange Academy. We've had some great talks in this group about why Calvin was motivated to do the things that he did. And it's made me much more sympathetic to him as a character. But And we're also not getting his viewpoint on this. We're getting Emily's. Emily seems to be that, you know, regardless of the reasoning and regardless of what they might want to do to help Calvin, he didn't deserve any of the consequences of his actions. She like like don't don't worry I don't hate Emily I <laughs> but she is having like the most hardcore white woman savior complex just nail me to the cross I do what I do because of the passion in my heart like oh my god you're not Joan of Arc bitch you're not saving anybody like she she only wants to do what she wants to do and only her reasoning is quote unquote right and i'm just like you bitch the only time that this group has worked in supporting each other is when they communicated with each other you're acting like oh you're just going to be the savior of everything going on and you know what your thought process is is the only thing that actually matters but it's like why 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 didn't you just why didn't you just talk to Doyle? Like, hey, I just found out Calvin's getting expelled, and this is this is really important. He needs friends. Can you come over? Like, at least at that point, if Doyle was still sore, you'd be like, I can understand why you're sore, but also you're probably not going to be murder hobo sore. So yay! But instead, it was just it's all about she centers herself in the middle of other people's pain and wants the results that she wants because she thinks it's best versus actually looking at the whole situation going oh okay there's a lot of fucked up things going on here and yes the adults have reasons for doing what they're doing but again the adults are also sucking at communicating and giving these kids the whole story and you know like actually having a conversation because they're just kids but yeah just oh yeah, it's a clusterfuck. <laughs> it's it's a very believable clusterfuck at that. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens with teens, right? So it, it makes sense that that they are kind of falling apart because of this lack of communication. They don't know how to properly communicate their frustrations with each other, and they're all stuck in their own heads because of their own circumstances. Except Emily, who likes to just let everybody know what she thinks puts it all out there yeah and i think you know if we really want to pin a sin on calvin it is that he did not seek the help of his friends when he was worried about his status at strange academy he didn't communicate mm -hmm. and we can understand the desperation but it took him to a point where he began putting other students in danger without talking to his friends about his fear that he wouldn't be able to keep up or asking for any kind of help he did go to the adults and i think we can return to that but he never communicated with his friends and this is a group that has shown that they show up when they know each other are in need it's a really important example again you know this is something that we've talked about in coverage of this book these are not the kind of like angsty will they won't they somebody's you know doing crime well actually now i guess calvin is doing crime but <laughs> they're their issues seem very real and very believable and not sort of 
of blown out teen drama. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing that they're the parts of them that make them real, their character traits. Emily's distrust of authority has been really fun and important at times, but we're now seeing it taken to a point where it's becoming problematic for the group. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because she's gotten away with it in the past. So I think she's just gotten far too bold for her own britches, as it were. She got away with it when um, she gave that prisoner a way to kind of escape that solitude and have, you know, his family basically in, in his head so that he could be a little bit freer she got away with you know doing a lot of shit that i'm sure more adults should have you know had a stronger reaction to or at least you know followed up with some guidance and so i think she's honestly getting a little bit of that complex in her head well well everything else i've done is right and everything else i've done doesn't have consequences so what the fuck it's like bitch well, this issue makes me wonder about just how involved the teachers actually are other than, I mean, even Voodoo up to a certain point in the story hasn't really felt involved. This issue in particular was very eye-opening. The teachers were just sitting in their rooms going, where are the te- where are the students? Why aren't they here? Instead of actually going out to look for them and figuring out why they're all walking out. Yeah. So I, I honestly think that there's not a lot of adult supervision or guidance. Mm-hmm. Like they're at an academy. They're literally living there. It's not like they're just, you know, getting on a magical school bus, coming to school and then, you know, going back home where their parents can give them some guidance and input. It it feels like the the teachers and the adults present are kind of letting them run feral. Mm-hmm. Possibly because they've never really dealt with children before or realized that children need a pretty heavy amount of guidance. Well, when it comes to a lot of the teachers, they are (laughs) guest stars in the book (laughs) with quite a lot of drama of their own. I'm like between Magic and Agnes and Hellstrom. We know that these characters have very lived in lives of their own. And so in some ways it makes total sense that they are just completely oblivious. And it's something that anybody who follows X-Men teens through the many years (laughs) knows how often the adults fail them because Mm. of their own drama. I think when this book started, we were all sort of hoping on the promise that this would be a little different because we were seeing a bunch of new and different characters really at the helm. Jericho Drum, Zelma, the mindful one. Like, you know, this is a different cast of adults, but we're seeing that they are trapped in the same Marvel cycle of their own concerns, plans, and drama, really starting to blind them to the duty that they've been charged with. Mm-hmm. So, of course, nobody is paying attention when the confrontation in the cafeteria starts to get violent. You know, I definitely have some problems with Emily's choices over the past 24 hours, but I was sort of shocked at how cold and cruel Doyle became and how little sympathy he had for for Calvin in that moment when they started to debate whether or not he should be expelled. Well, I mean, he's coming from it exceedingly 
hurt point, but also think of who his father is. Mm-hmm. His father is an, an interdimensional, basically God, who can destroy, you know, entire galaxies if he wanted to. Like, he's an insanely powerful uh, being, but also that's what Calvin has lived with for most of his life, is that callousness, that destructive force. So, to him, it probably is pretty cut and clear that, yeah, no, Calvin was doing some pretty shady, effed up stuff, and he shouldn't have gone down that route. But he's also, he's talking from a place of privilege. His entire life is magic. So, you know, this this kid who is from the system, who who his first foray really into magic was that coat and he's like no he just should have found it another way it's like what other way he he literally didn't feel like he had any other way and with his circumstances in life that was very believable that that there wasn't another way to do magic or get magic or you know stay here with his friends he's up in his fields and it leads to a moment where that hurt and you know the the power and privilege that he has sort of flips the switch in his head and the confrontation becomes violent and it becomes a display of not just his power, but I think him acting out the very real fear that he is the one Mm -hmm. and that what that means is that he is bound to destroy them all. Mm -hmm. And he gives them a taste of that. Oh yeah. (laughs) He literally tossed their lunch. (laughs) Which I think I've liked how this story has kind of eased us into all of these kids and what they can do. You know, again, looking at X teen books, they're often in the field within the first couple issues, regardless of how much learning or developing of powers they might do. We see them fight quite a bit and we've seen a more sort of broad use of powers amongst these kids. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we've seen how powerful Emily is in ways that are usually not particularly uh, battle or confrontation based. This is really the first time that we get that. Well, I shouldn't say it's the first time, but it's one of few times where we get that really stark example of these kids as potential warriors. I don't think he was going full tilt. That's the scary part. I don't think he was actually going full tilt. I think he was expressing a lot of um, anger and negative emotions because of how he's been treated and who he could possibly be. And for the most part, he seemed to be doing a lot of counterspell, some direct hand to hand, but he wasn't like, he didn't burn anybody to cinder. He didn't dismember anyone or, you know, he knocked him around. He absolutely knocked mm-hmm. him around, mm-hmm. but he didn't try to kill them which is something he probably could have done to to a couple of them oh yeah so, yeah like, i think he was, I was holding back i'm looking at the panel where he attacks toth or toth mm-hmm. attacks him and you can see that he does at least cause cracks in toth's arm he definitely could have at least shattered him shattered him yeah he's definitely holding back he was giving all the characters a chance not to join the fight and when they did that was when he was attacking Mm -hmm. i really don't want to say that he's 
turning that corner into antagonist side of things. Mm-hmm. He's lashing out. Yeah, he's hurt. Like yeah. you said, he's hurt and nobody is sticking up for him. Nobody is coming to take his side and understanding mm-hmm. why he is hurt. Mm-hmm. And the person that he thought was most on his side isn't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I can understand why he's lashing out. And yet by the same token, it's Emily, as soon as the fight ends, that is the first person to come to his defense as well and say this is not his fault it's this place mm-hmm. again recentering herself and what she thinks which was the <laughs> problem this entire effing time like it started with what she thought how she thought things should go da 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 it's always about her and then she literally like at the end of the fight she's like no it's not his fault i'm like what what fucking sword are you falling on now but again it's it's always you know back to having the eyes on her she's she, oh, i hate to say it but she's slowly becoming a little bit of a narcissist mm-hmm. yep i can definitely yeah. agree with that yeah and i think it points to a very real way in which she might be the one mm-hmm. because when we're if we're talking about you know power levels and in a fight sure doyle could end them all but when it comes to can this group and this school work mm-hmm. it's emily that might be saying no and it is you know calling for a a break in what's happening and when we're talking about a group of students and friends and a school she's the one who is proposing ending it all Mm -hmm. because if she can't have it nobody can which leads us to the revelation that calvin did not go home while expelled he remains in how is that a revelation (laughs) like the moment jericho said yeah i put him on a bus oh you did did you magically fly his ass home oh that's right he doesn't have one like just look the fact that Jericho the fact that anybody at that academy just thought Calvin went home while gas lamp was a threat but nobody checked on it like nobody checked to make sure he actually got home they put him on a fucking bus mm-hmm. they put him on a fucking bus they didn't put him in the magic school bus they didn't walk him home they didn't teleport him home they didn't actually escort him to where he is supposed to be they just put him on a bus and you'll get there like what the is mentally wrong with you yeah i mean it it speaks to that way in which the faculty is failing these students they believe that they as the ultimate authority in magic what they say goes and that that will just be followed intrinsically and we keep seeing over and over again that it's not Mm -hmm. which leads us to one of the really interesting things about this issue and the time at which it's coming out At the time of this being published, there are over two dozen different anti-trans, anti-queer legislation that affects LGBTQIA plus people and especially youth. And I think what we see over and over again when you dig into these issues is it has absolutely nothing to do with any kind of concern for children. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of using politics to make statements and to drum up support and essentially using children as pawns and thinking of them as something that in a larger game you can reference and Mm -hmm. score points or get ahead. Mm 
Well, yes, because won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> that is that has always been a rallying cry for people who have literally no other salient or well thought out point. They literally grab a child and throw it in front of themselves and their ideologies as a shield. And it's bullshit. I have a lot of very serious and and more than just mildly venomous thoughts on people who create these bills because at the heart of them the children are actually never the actual thought they are not the people that are to actually be protected this is adults who have their particular ideologies and hatreds and they are using children as a shield so that they can push that agenda further forward and i find it vile i find it reprehensible because the kids are actually actually put in worse danger by things like this just like they are in this book the adults not talking the adults not being truthful and honest and having open dialogue with these kids are the reason a lot of these kids are now in danger and i think we're seeing a level of planning and a an understanding amongst the faculty that there is a lot more going on here the price that is being paid for magic is something that is not shared with the students mm -hmm. when you have a character like gaslamp who isn't faculty but he is an adult in the metaphorical room who is clearly using the children as pawns mm -hmm. when you have a moment like jericho confronting him at the beginning about the children while also completely as you pointed out raven missing the fact that the child that he put on the bus didn't get on the bus you know it's obviously not as duplicitous as the politics of our world and dr voodoo you know using the children in name only when he has other plans but he very mm -hmm. clearly does have other plans and he does not have his eye on the children to the degree that he really needs to mm -hmm. the day before this issue came out there actually was a there were numerous school walkouts in, in florida in protest of of HB 1557, the Don't Say Gay Bill. So to me, to see this book end in a student walkout and one where we see so much of the student perspective of it, and it's more complicated than just taking a stance. But when we consider what we've seen just before that, and again, the point that you brought up about, you know, none of the teachers are looking for them. <laughs> none of the teachers are paying attention. Dr. Strange, for whom the Academy is named for, is dead, but very clearly never had the presence at the school that you would think the Sorcerer Supreme would have. Mm -hmm. Jericho is making some really questionable decisions when it comes to how to act as parents to these students. You know, the, the parallels are not perfect, but we do see that the adults have failed them and their response is to walk out. And I think it's an incredibly important thing because you know, despite their issues with each other and actually, you know, in support of their issues with each other, they don't really have a lot of, lot of other options because they're literally coming to blows and putting each other in danger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't blame them for walking out. They have had so many instances where 
the teachers not explaining the circumstances has led them to danger. Mm -hmm. The teachers not being there for them at all has just made the whole situation worse. I can understand them walking out. And it's something that, that we saw this week with the students down in Florida walking out of their schools because they feel like they've been abandoned by the people running their state. And I think, you know, this idea of wanting to train the next generation is something that we see in Marvel all the time. And I think I there's ways in which I really love it as a kid that grew up with Marvel Comics having this belief of like, I could be something more and seeing myself reflected in the teens, wanting to sort of have a destiny or a mission and wanting there to be adults that knew what they were doing and were going to sort of guide me was always a really exciting thing. And then the older you get and the more you keep reading comics, you find the adults have absolutely no clue what they're doing, are dealing with a lot of their own drama and are basically imprinting their ideas onto these students that don't know any better with regards to whether or not they should be questioning this this authority. And so it's one way in which I do sort of really appreciate Emily's standpoint in that she's been questioning authority the entire time. And she often goes about it in the wrong way. And again, I think we see that at the start of this book. But her conviction, I think, is really important as we come to the end of it and we come to require a reckoning of the adults that said that they were going to train these students and have failed to do so. So like real life. Because <laughs> honestly, in, in real life, students don't have too much power. Kids in general don't have too much power. So sometimes the, the only thing you can do when you do not have power, and we see this with adults as well, is just, just walk out. Mm-hmm. If you no longer give your body, your mind, your time to you know people who are clearly not deserving it not treating you uh with proper respect as a human being like walk the fuck out that's what a strike is that's what a worker strike is is you know everybody's like yep nope we're done with the disrespect and you know we remove ourselves from you know a person's you know time person's labor you know person's presence you know we're we're okay fine we're not gonna we're not gonna do this anymore do 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 so yeah no like even though Emily was leading it. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I am glad that the students walked out because honestly, what strange Academy is doing, keeping so much pertinent information from them, dissuading them from asking questions because they've tried to ask questions on a number of occasions Mm -hmm. and have gotten stonewalled or, you know, told, Oh no, don't worry. You don't have to worry about that. We, we've, we've got it covered. Don't worry. We'll, we'll tell you what to think. We got this. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they're finally walking out because they're not being given credence. They're not being allowed to question why they do magic the way they do or what the consequences of that magic could be. You know, they're not learning how to be functional adults who can wield magic. Kind of like certain people are not letting kids become functional people by being able to ask questions on things that are confusing or concerning them. The fact that they feel like the teachers don't trust them to understand the information, of course they're going to walk out. I mean, 
kids understand more than adults realize. I know that is a kind of cliched thing to say. Kids are incredibly smart and they will find out the information on their own anyway, usually, but it's better to provide that information in a safe environment than it is for them to do it without safety precautions, I guess. Guidance. In this, in in this, yeah, guidance, especially in this instance when it comes to magic, they need support. They don't just need somebody to be there saying, yeah, do this because I say so. That's what they need. They need somebody to say, oh yeah, yeah, this is okay. Here's what could happen if you don't do it the right way. Here's what you're going to be paying on the back end because magic costs. Mm-hmm. And if you don't learn to, if you don't learn to deal with those consequences, because, you know, you get a little carefree, a little trigger happy because, hey, you're a kid and they're taking care of it. So we don't have any backlash. We don't have any consequences. I'm like, yeah, it's great that you don't think you have any consequences. And the, and the adults have very much led you to believe that there are no consequences for what you are doing. But <laughs> reality is going to be a very cruel, mm-hmm. cruel thing when mm-hmm. they try try and do what they've been doing because they got a little footloose and fancy free and then find out that literally even some of the smallest spells that they were casting have major ramifications and major costs. How many of them is the cost going to catch up with them? Because Emily basically uh, did necromancy. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, Desi ate and in, like, and I get that she's a demon, but I mean, she ate a magical entity that that festers and feasted and grew on despair mm-hmm. like each of these kids have expended a very large amount of magical energy and now hogoth seems to be suffering and strange is dead so the backlash is kind of eminent and on top of that there's a prophecy that the adults know that the kids know about <laughs> Right. And every time they're confronted with it, they pull some sort of like, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. It can go any number of ways rather than kind of sitting down and talking with the students about what this could mean, what to think about, you know, how to live your life in a way that is healthy when you know that the, you know, the consequences of the future for people in a world with prophecy are a little different. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you got to take them get- store prophecies like to heart (laughs) and so i think as we move uh into the final issue of the first semester of strange academy knowing that we are getting a second semester what i'd love to know from you guys is what you want to see to resolve this storyline in a way that leads you to want to see these kids get back to school Mm. honestly i'll take whatever scotty young and crew wants to give me (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i i I agree. I feel like there's going to have to be a lot happen in the next issue to get things back to a point where all the students are back. That kind of worries me that... I just want these kids to be happy. (laughs) I mean, I think we could be definitely looking at a storyline where they leave at the end of issue 18 and the start of the next semester is getting them back somehow. Yeah, I could see that. That would be a good direction for it. I I have a feeling that there's going to be an arc that's going to look at basically kind of like that break from Mm -hmm. the first into the second. I don't think they're going to dive directly into the second semester. 
I think there's got to be an arc in between there where they figure their shit out. There's definitely a need for faculty change, but is there a way in which that can happen? The character that I really see as having tried their best to balance the needs of the students with the knowledge of the greater magical world is Zelma. Mm -hmm. And her authority is constantly called into question. And she's sort of often just relegated to that librarian status where I think she might be the person that is better capable over somebody like Dr. Voodoo of actually looking after these kids and being in a role of authority over them. I'm sorry, do, do, do you recognize, do you realize who the magic-using teachers are at this school? <laughs> You're asking for magic? Damien Hellstrom, Agatha Harkness. I, I I love your optimism. I truly do. <laughs> but these these are people I wouldn't necessarily trust to not have something horrible happen to my dog if I let them dog sit, kind of thing. Like you know what I mean? They they mean well, but they are they are adults with very singular minds who honestly feel like they're showing up because they've been told that they need to show up for for hey, you got to teach three classes in order to get your funding kind of thing. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm, I'm just saying, mm -hmm. I'm just saying. <laughs> I do think that Zelma should have some kind of a promotion in the school. She definitely sees more than the other faculty do. I feel like Dr. Voodoo has been a little bit too much on the administrative side and not paying attention to the population enough to actually know what's really going on in the school. So yeah, I'd like to see her take on more responsibility. I just want the teachers to be better, you know? Oh yes, I think we all definitely know, especially at this point. Mm -hmm. Honestly with you on that, I want the teachers and the students to be doing well. I, mm -hmm. I would love a, a, a happy, <laughs> a happy-go-lucky adventuresome type book. But I also do love the way that real world angst has been gently woven into everything that's going on because honestly it makes the characters more human mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and a lot like you can actually relate to them i can't believe i'm saying that. i actually relate to doyle dormammu <laughs> <laughs> like what the shit but yeah it's it, it it's it's angsty and i know that they're gonna have probably some pretty deep angst but that just kind of hopefully sets us up for uh good resolution good catharsis and and growth mm -hmm. yeah i think at the end of the day that's what we'd love to see both from the adults and the students we can just kind of excuse it a little more when the students are having trouble getting there true but i mean mm -hmm. you know a lot of the teachers are kind of like grown-ass kids on on some levels yeah lots yeah. of ptsd in that group <laughs> yes oh yeah one other thing that I want to see some more development for the new students, Howie, Heidi, get a little more time with Ava. Yes. I saw at least um, a dozen new students represented and I'm like, damn it, now yeah. I need stories. <laughs> <laughs> now we need to know about every single one of them, full backstories, you know, plot issues for each of them. Just, you know, crank it out when you got time. We'll wait. Yep. <laughs> 